0: In a world of complex and overwhelming challenges, the Inspirational Insights Podcast provides a shift in perspective. Dive into the minds of brilliant thinkers, creatives, and edge-riding leaders who have adapted their thinking and leadership practices to match today's perplexing challenges. Your host, Donna Jones, leads captivating conversations with trailblazers from diverse fields who have transcended tough and complex conditions to contribute to a healthier world. Can we collectively break old habits to reinvent the human work earth relationship and support the vitality
1: and diversity of all life? Harnessing agility, embracing possibilities. Welcome to the journey.
0: My name is Harry Turner. I'm 29 years old and originally from the UK. I left school with hardly any qualifications that would have been any use to anyone. I joined the military and after a tour of Afghanistan, I found myself in some dark places that ended me in the Peruvian Amazon, where after several years of learning the land and learning the language and everything that comes with diving into the forest, I then helped reintroduce two wild animals, as well as many other animals as well. Two were ocelots, small cats, which are my personal favorite cat of the Amazon. My story is one of healing, one of redemption, and also just learning from mistakes as well.
1: I am so excited to have with me today, Harry Turner, follow him on Instagram. (laughs) And so watch these incredible adventures in Peru and particularly with ocelots and snakes, which we will be talking about because people are afraid of things they don't understand. Snakes are really high on the list along with things that have been demonized by, I think, media ridiculously. So I think there's a lot to learn here. Harry released a documentary in 2019,
0: It came out at the end of
1: 2022, yeah. It's called Wildcat, and it's the documentary of what I consider to be a vital journey. We're going to dive into what are the things you learn when you take dark things and turn them into better things. Other people have interviewed Harry, and there's some wonderful conversations, so I encourage you to have a listen to those as well. We're going to be bridging off of of those interviews to a degree. But you went to Peru to take your life, as I understood it.
0: Yeah, so So when I was 18 years old, I joined the British Army. And I joined the Army because I needed money, I was good at running, and I didn't really see any kind of real future for myself in the UK. My dad was also in the Navy, so it was ingrained in me slightly. I joined at 18. I then did six months in training And then I did six months in Afghanistan almost instantly. I did two weeks in between training in Afghanistan. That deployment wasn't the easiest for me, especially at such a young and naive age. I turned 19 on my tour. When I came back, I was struggling deeply with PTSD. Things weren't looking good for me. I sold everything, I packed up everything, and then I... For a flight to the jungle, I had come to the realisation I was never going to come back again. I woke up every morning when I was in the jungle to the sound of monkeys and birds and just nature. And every day I said to myself, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself. Today is the day. I was out with some of the local people and we had just gone fishing we were catching our own food and we were living off the land and it had been like a really long hot day it was lovely it was really hot the sun was beaming down on us we'd caught some fish we were going to have full bellies and we were riding back on the boat and the sun was going down and the bats were changing with the birds and i just remember thinking to myself why do you want to kill yourself you have All these people at home that care about you. You have so much to live for. Why do you want to kill yourself? And I just remember saying to myself, don't be an idiot. After that, I went out on a night walk and I remember seeing so much more colour and hearing so many more sounds and smelling so many more smells. That grave had lifted from my mentality. Colour had become more of a part of it. For me... When I'm in nature, if I go into nature and I take away my phone and I take away internet and I take away all these different things and I just dive into the deep end, that's really when I become the healthiest that I can as a human being. When I was there, it just took me about two weeks to really realize that everything was going to be okay. I just really needed to get all of that cloudy kind of weather out of my sight before I could really see the clear.
1: It's about noticing when there's a shift in your state of mind. Our world is very noisy with a lot of negative stuff. And it's a cacophony uh, of intense sounds. The the bush is the place where you can actually clear all that off and and recover your senses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was just one of those things where I don't know why I went to the jungle. I don't know why I chose Peru. I just did a quick Google search and was like, that's it. I'm just going to go, whatever. I don't know why it happened, but it happened for a reason. And I'm not a religious person or someone who really reads into it too much, but I am someone that just definitely now believes. I believe now, back then, when I was in my bad headspace, I definitely didn't believe that everything happened for a reason. But it does, and it's a very weird thing, this world that we live in. It's clouded by judgment and uncertainty, and you are always going to bump into troubles, but you just need to make the most of them troubles when you're jumping over the hurdles. Yeah,
1: very true indeed. Now, the arc that I saw you go from was very dark to care and compassion and empathy. There's a wisdom that emerged out of your experience in the jungle. Let's start with what did these ocelots, these baby ocelots, teach you? What was the the process of reconnecting essentially to yourself?
0: Yeah, so these orphaned ocelots came to me at two different times in my life. The first one, Khan, he came to me when I was in a transitional period of my life. Unsure what I was going to do in this rainforest. I was unsure what I was going to do if I went home. I didn't really know what my plan was or what my intention was to do with the jungle. I just know that I needed this place to heal. And when this ocelot came into my life, I took it as like a test. I knew that if he was going to stay with the loggers that he had come down river with, he was going to go to the black market. He was going to get his teeth ground down. He was going to get his claws pulled out. He was going to live a horrible life with malnutrition, um, abuse, neglect, Everything that comes with taking animals from their natural habitat and taking them into civilization and for profit. And so I took him at the beginning, not knowing what my plan was. I just knew that he had a better chance with me than he did on the black market. I knew that I had connections and friends in the world that would have been able to say, okay, I can take him and do this, or this is what you should do. In the end, what happened was I was laying in my hammock with him and he was curled up on my chest because he was feeling my heartbeat and feeling my breath and he was feeling comfortable and content right there. And I just said, you know what? I don't have anything to lose. If I don't go home, I don't have a job. If I stay here, I'm just, I'm going to be in the rainforest. I can give this animal a better chance at life than it would have if I had just let it go or let it go to someone else. And so that's when it really started. I'd never done a reintroduction. I'd never really worked one-on-one with a wild animal. I just knew that via my time in the rainforest and whilst like handling different wildlife And animals, and also photographing and filming different animals, I had this kind of deeper understanding than most to what this animal really needed. From there, it spiraled. We started hunting together, going on night walks, swimming together, tracking animals, cleaning each other. It was just this symbiotic friendship, relationship, fatherhood. I really became a parent. What was mine? was his and what was his was mine. If we went out and we caught an animal that he was going to eat, then I would also eat it. We didn't want to see any waste. We didn't want to see his life be wasted and I didn't have anything to lose.
1: So there was a beautiful exchange between the two of you along the way. What I'm feeling from it is that there's a whole new world that opens up when you start seeing the world through the eyes of an ocelot, particularly a baby ocelot. And all of a sudden, as a parent, there's all these risks and dangers and so forth that you may not be concerned about, but you now you are because there's this baby ocelot. How did you process that that experience of all of a sudden having to be a defender from some pretty significant dangers to a baby ocelot in the jungle? People hear jungle and freak out, particularly Peruvian or Amazonian jungle. There's a lot of fear around that. How did you feel as you're working with this baby ocelot and it's experimenting with crocodiles and all sorts of (laughs) snakes and whatever else it came across? Yeah.
0: It definitely was challenging. I remember the first encounter that Khan had with another male ocelot. This ocelot was massive. He wanted to kill him. He was in his territory. So I'm learning, okay, this baby needs to really stay by me because if he doesn't, he's going to get killed. If he doesn't, he's going to try and eat something that could kill him. There's so many things you don't think of. You see these wild animals and you think, oh, that mum with the baby looks really cute. That's amazing. I'm glad that they're in the wild and they look so happy. But you have parasites, you have infection, you have disease, you have predation from other animals. And that's just for him, the baby ocelot. When it came down to me, during this process, I had botflies, I had giardia, I had dengue twice. I had cuts and lacerations, and and where the ocelot was either biting or scratching me, these would get infected. And I had to be careful about my health, because if my health deteriorated, then his health would, because I was the one that was giving him the opportunity to spend his time Nights and evenings and mornings out in the forest and trying to keep him safe. If I wasn't healthy, he wasn't safe. I had to really learn to look after myself before I could really look after anything else. And even when I was struggling mentally, even though I was struggling physically, whether that be parasites or dengue or anything that comes with rainforest living, I had to just grin and bear it. I had to just say... Get out of bed. You need to do this because if you don't, then Khan isn't going to have a full belly. Khan isn't going to be content. You need to do this right now. That's the drive that I had to keep getting up in the mornings.
1: Sounds like the same parallel that a lot of parents go through with with kids. I was a single parent raising my daughter, and if I didn't work, there wasn't anything coming in. So I can relate Mm. because uh, it's that get up in the morning, do what needs to be done, now, tell me about snakes, because I have watched you on Instagram do some brilliant work with the Fair de lance in Costa Rica, some of the more poisonous snakes, venomous snakes. I personally have an appreciation for snakes. I, I can't handle them like you do, but I do have a wonderful appreciation for them, mostly because they've been demonized, and yet they play such an important role in our ecosystem. Einstein said, our circle of compassion must widen to include all living things a conversation about snakes is appropriate.
0: Yeah, I've had over a decade of experience working with venomous snakes and so when it comes down to me handling and working with these animals, it isn't just me going out to the forest and just willy-nilly grabbing <laughs> something that I don't really know. Before the venomous snakes, I had rodents and reptiles and fish and everything as pets when I lived at home as a kid, as well as obviously dogs and cats that my parents still work with today. When I left home, they got rid of everything else that (laughs) I wasn't going to be having. The tarantulas were one of them. But yes, snakes for me have always been this very important animal. I grew up in an era where Steve Irwin was my idol. I know that some of the things that Steve Irwin did definitely opened the eyes to many people about wildlife, but it also put into perspective how dangerous these animals could be. And so when I left home and I went to the jungle, I was working with herpetologists, scientists that were experts in this field. I learned different things about toxicology. I learned different things about behavior. It's very easy to tell if a snake is angry or a snake is relaxed because their body language gives away this incredible picture you can tell if something's going to be annoyed at you um for example a rattlesnake if you walk past a rattlesnake and it doesn't rattle you can guarantee that it's not going to try and bite you you can guarantee that it's not going to come towards you or, or anything like that because what it's doing is it's using its scales as camouflage when it's camouflaged and you don't see it you are no threat and it's no threat to you If it starts to rattle its tail, it's because you got a little bit too close, but it doesn't mean that it's going to bite you. Now, if you get any closer and you start messing with it, if you were an eighth the size of what you were, and this huge thing came up to you and was stomping around you and looking at you and and shouting, you would also be in a bad place, right? It's survival. It's fight or flight. If the snake isn't going to slither away with its flight, then it's going to stand its ground and it's going to fight because it has no other way. If you don't give it that option of fear, there's no threat to you from a snake. There are obviously issues with this. For example, if you go to put on your shoe and you haven't checked your shoe and there's a snake in it, It's being backed into a corner, right? You haven't physically meant to hurt or do harm to that animal. And it doesn't see you as being this gentle giant that's made a mistake. It's just seen its life at threat. And so snakes are just this incredible thing. They're such an important part to this world. If we didn't have snakes, we would have vermin, a disease, because there would be too many rodents. There's... So many things that we can teach people about reptiles. The Bible puts down snakes. It makes them seem evil. A lot of religion and a lot of countries have this fear. And a lot of it is irrelevant, honestly. You hear your grandfather's grandfather tell a story about an anaconda that ate a whole field of cows. And then over time, the whispers changes the story. And then at the end of it, this anaconda has horns, and it it can be the size of 18 meters. I've heard these stories. I've heard of horned anacondas, and I've I've heard of all these different things. These stories make sense if you put them out and let people say what they want to say. But in reality, it's really untrue of what a lot of people have said about snakes.
1: Mm. What I appreciate about that overview, Harry, is that we are afraid. There's a lot of fear in our world today about just about everything. The mental health rates have gone up. The statistics have gone up. It's gotten far worse post-COVID, but it was also not great beforehand. Fear of difference, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of things we don't understand. There's just layers of fear. And and what I appreciate about what you've just said is that it, 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 we, we just need to demystify a whole lot of, of things that we think we're afraid of. I think one of the quotes that I pulled out of your interview is that the mind is the scariest thing when you go into your mind that's where you'll find the the scary stuff what sort of experience or what sort of observations can you add to for people who are struggling with either fears of snakes or fears of any kind the ones that you create in the head
0: everybody knows that if you spend a lot of time by yourself or if you're laying in bed and you're ruminating and you're thinking about all these things you start to spiral into darkness, whether that be money issues, whether that be drug addiction, whether that be just the loss of a loved one and you start thinking, what ifs, what ifs. As humans, we're very, very intelligent, but we're not as intelligent as we could be because we need to know that thinking about the past and thinking about all these awful things that we've been through or done or are thinking about in our future, they're said and done. We need to get ourselves into the present more. Um, And I think a lot of the time we see ourselves in the present, but we're thinking about the future and the past and how we're going to make ends meet. And it doesn't help that we have an economy which is up and down. It doesn't help that we have a minimum wage which doesn't get us from A to B. It doesn't help the fact that people die around us and that causes stress and people have traumatic experiences and that causes Issues with not being able to work properly or concentrate. One of these things where I have personally been through a lot in my life. I have been to war at a young age. I have seen a lot of death and destruction in my life. I have struggled with suicidal thoughts, self-harm. I've struggled with a constant battle in my own head with the fact that I'm not good enough or I need to just end it. These struggles... They're not easy in the moment. When I'm talking to you right now, I'm in the present and I'm thinking that experience in 2012 was terrible or that experience in 2016 was the worst day of my life. All these different bits and pieces, they come back to you somehow, but it's how you move on from them is the key. It's how you work on yourself. You can have these bad experiences and that's okay. If we all lived a very plain and vanilla life, we would all be very plain and simple people. If I hadn't have gone through a traumatic experience, I would never have gone to the jungle. If I hadn't have gone to the jungle, I would have never have met Khan or Keanu. If I had never have gone through Khan and Keanu, I would never have met my wife. It's one of these things where it's like everything happens for a reason, and it doesn't matter how crappy that situation is. You just have to, you just have to take it on the chin and see where the next step takes you.
1: So what I appreciate about that, there's some measure of vision that goes with it, even if it just starts as a small sense of purpose, like in in your case, looking after this orphan ocelot. But it's that sense of what gets me up in the morning and is my north star through these dark places. It's moving through it as opposed to sitting in it permanently or even for long periods. That's key to this. It's understanding that whatever's happening, this too shall pass, is a bit of reassurance at the time as well. When you look at at how things have evolved, you started off working with an, an ocelot and your purpose was to help this little guy learn what he needed to learn so he could go back into the world, his world, the jungle world, and preferably not die, preferably function extremely well and thrive. That's changed. You've gone through that. You've successfully rewilded the ocelot. What's emerged for you since?
0: Yeah, so since Keanu, I left the jungle. I left the Peruvian Amazon. Then the pandemic happened. After the pandemic, during it, I should say, I went to Ecuador. There was a loophole in what countries I could go to, and I got on the first flight out of the UK because I was in a bad place. And so I went to Ecuador, fell in love with the place. I was working with a group called Tropical Herping. Then, with the film coming out, I decided that I wanted something good to come from it. I started a non-profit called Emerald Arch, and now Emerald Arch is raising funds so that we can buy plots of the rainforest in the Ecuador and Amazon. And that's not just so that we can protect it and do wildlife research. It's so that we can protect it, do wildlife research, do community outreach, working with local people to help educate. For example, educating with snakes. We want people to be more understanding of snakes and less fearful of them. But also one of the biggest projects that we have going on is actually the Veterans Therapy Project. What I'm going to be doing is taking people struggling with PTSD to the rainforest so that they can walk a few steps in my life. I want them to go to the jungle so that they can feel that disconnect from society. I want them to spend as as much time as they need to there. I want them to work on projects, whether that be cutting trails or whether that be working on themselves so that then they can get this new lease on life. They can start a new page in their book. Nature is one of the best healers. The Amazon rainforest helped me and I want to be that person that can help people in the future. 22 veterans a day in the U.S. alone commit suicide. If I can change one person's life, if I can help save one person's life, then Emerald Arch would have done what it set out to do. And that's to protect land and to protect veterans. There's so many options that we can work with once we have the land in Ecuador. And so right now we're fundraising to buy that first initial plot of land and so that we can start the process of one, protecting land and two, protecting the people that. Are struggling with PTSD.
1: I personally think that a whole lot of CEOs and executives could benefit from a a program that really helps connect. The biggest challenge we have today is to reconnect, reconnect with each other, yeah. develop that care and compassion. The natural worlds really are the best environments for that, the absolute best environments. Absolutely. What
0: it saved my life, so why can't it save someone else's?
1: I was fortunate enough as a kid to grow up with a wildlife photographer dad. We wandered around the world when I was 15 and and we were camping in all sorts of wild and crazy places. When I came back into the home environment, I was 16 in high school and it was the most brutal context that I could have imagined. You said something else that I really appreciated too, which I, I want to touch on. Two things. One, being where you are not mentally fit is the most dangerous place. And when I heard you say that, I thought, oh, my gosh, consider the implication for workplaces, for schools that do not adapt their strategies to teach kids to think differently. Workplaces that are calibrated for mentally bringing yourself to work, but not the rest of you. That, I think, captures the wisdom of how we situate ourselves, find ourselves. What's our place in the world? One of my friends was an eco guide in Ecuador for 13 years and spent a lot of time with the Taramirani. A a pretty incredible, now changed group of wild people. What's going on in the Amazon, the loss of habitat and loss associated with wild people who come out of the bush every now and again and who try to keep control of their lands from poachers and animal poachers. What purposes do wild places serve and wild people serve?
0: If we didn't have nature, we would all be extremely depressed. A lot of people on their lunch breaks will go on a walk or they'll take their dogs to a park. Or on a weekend, people will go out snowboarding or camping. If we didn't have these small kind of like micro doses or doses of happiness and nature, we wouldn't have anything to really live for. It would just be money, money, money and more greed. I feel like with the rate that we're going, and the amount of land that we're destroying and with the land that we're destroying we're destroying the natural habitat of wildlife and wild people it's it's just a matter of time before we really do just kick ourselves in the butt natural places have this incredible and important role in our ecosystem if we don't have rainforest we're not capturing the carbon if we don't have clean oceans there's so many things that come with it if we're destroying areas and putting concrete blocks in there we're destroying the majority of the fungi which absorbs all the toxins in in the atmosphere as humans we're always going to live and we're always going to learn but I feel like this generation has lived and not learned at all we know that it's terrible and we know that it's not good but We're so content with our comfort and we're so content with our hardwood floors and fancy cars, even when it comes down to electric cars, it's all well and good because you're not using fossil fuels, but you're destroying half of the ocean to try and get the minerals that you need for these batteries. It's really hard because some people really want to do good, but there isn't really a way in this world that we can do good because we're always doing something which is jeopardizing something else. I feel the best thing is to just stop. When the pandemic happened and everyone stopped, you saw so much more wildlife. You saw nature flourish. You saw all these incredible things because people were doing what people should be doing. And that's staying at home with their families and doing small bits and pieces in their local area area. You're not commuting three hours to go to work where you sit in an office and you hate your life and then commute three hours back at the same time. You're buying a takeout which is in styrofoam and it's a plastic cup and you throw it in the trash and you don't even recycle it. All these things, there's so many bits and pieces that we could do to make this world better. But at the end of the day, I feel like everybody's so content in what they do that It's a waste of time.
1: And yet, if we do not care about the impact we have and step into a measure of responsibility, civilization cannot continue. It's an end game.
0: You're saying that in a negative way, but maybe it's the world telling us that we are the problem and we are the parasites and we need to be eliminated so that then the rest of the world can continue to live how it's supposed to. We are the worst things that ever happened to this world. So if we do push ourselves to extinction, that's probably the best thing to happen for this world.
1: Urban lateral systems theorist describes humanity as a cancer, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a sickness that's infected the planet. And we're in this you know, bifurcation. We're in this process where we've designed everything in a very simple way, but the complexity is pushing us to Make bigger jumps. And and so it's a huge opportunity, I think, for adap- of adaptability, a huge Absolutely. opportunity. Terry, it's just so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. It's a breath of fresh air. Um, having spent so much time myself uh, in the woods, it, the woods saved me in, in, as a kid growing up because the world was noisy and confusing. I got involved in horses. They're the best teachers you could possibly get. Very intuitive, yeah. very... Sensory, speak non verbally. So you really have to listen differently. And that means you listen differently to the world as well. But also, my experience with my father, where you are witnessing why diversity is so critical.
0: Absolutely.
1: Tell us where people can go to help you with uh, Emerald Arch.
0: Yeah. So www.emeraldarch.org is our website. Uh, there's a few pages on there where it talks about our projects and Uh, there's a donate button at the top and at the bottom anything really does help to securing that land whether it goes to actually buying a square footage of land the lawyer fees to get this land in our possession properly everything helps but the best thing that could happen is just word of mouth people speaking about what I have done and I have achieved and what I'm doing now Anything that can push out Emerald Arch, push out the story of Khan and Keanu, I said to both of them, I'm going to make sure that you guys are remembered. And that's what I'm doing. If you haven't seen the documentary you do, it's a very vulnerable film. Prepare with your tissues because it does get quite sad, sad, but it's a very real film. So I hope that a lot of people can watch that and go from there. Any support is absolutely incredible. So thank you in advance.
1: Thank you, Harry, for being on the program. I'm hoping we can continue our conversation as Emerald Arch unfolds and we see what steps humanity takes to to really be a part of something much bigger in this world than just be comfortable.
0: Absolutely. I agree 100%.
1: Dark places and experiences, whether it's trauma or something else, lies on the path to wisdom. The experience itself can be very unconscious. It can be something you've just been placed in. You ended up there somehow. Wisdom emerges only through reflection from learning from the experience and understanding it from a different perspective and a different point of view. In this series, you heard Lilia talk about her return to herself, which was a matter of personal skills, inner skills of reclaiming her energy, looking at who am I in this new place, what do I, who do I want to be, what are my choices, what, what lies in front of me and doing the expression work that allows your deeper intuition to point you to what are the things you're looking to transform or transcend in the moment. The second interview then was with E. Hork uh, who explained his journey moving through the, the experience of torture after being illegally imprisoned, but also through how he came to understand that emotionally. The process he went through to get to a place emotionally where he could forgive his tormentors. Very powerful work. And then finally, with Harry's conversation here, where we talk about both a sense of purpose and, of course, a very strong connection to nature, which is essential for all of us to be able to stay balanced, to be able to see ourselves, be able to connect with ourselves. Whatever dark experiences you've been through, whatever place of trauma you've been through, it is there for a purpose. It is there for you to learn, for us each to learn. What is it that this experience can teach me? What can I learn from it? And who do I become through it? Whether you make the choice intuitively or make it intentionally, There is the decision to either stay frozen in the past or to work with the experience you've had and move through it to become more fulfilled and to be able to contribute at a much higher level of purpose. I'm hoping you received some insights from these three conversations that allow you to find your own way forward through reflection or through connection with nature or all of the above. It's uh, a chance to transform and transmute dark experiences into a stronger and clearer sense of purpose and contribution. Knowingly or unknowingly, there is a choice at times to stay in the past, to stay frozen, with the trauma. And my observation in my facilitation work, people do choose to live in the past and often stay emotionally frozen right at that point of trauma. In other words, there is no evolution of emotional maturity. It stops there at that point in time. So there is a choice and an opportunity to move out of that and into a more fulfilling, rich life, higher sense of purpose and also a deep and profound depth of inner security and personal security. There is a choice to be made to decide whether to be a part of a wider set of solutions that make the world a better place or to dwell in the fear. And and that's as blunt as I can make it at this point in time. With these three narratives, these three stories, these three experiences, Perhaps you have received some insight, some sense of direction, some skills, something that allows you to know how to work with something that's been perplexing, an interruption to life that threw everything up in the air and forced a rethink, forced a re-examination. That's the purpose. They give you a chance to do something different, to think differently, to do something different, and to become someone better through the process. My name is Donna Jones. Thank you very much for listening, particularly through these last three episodes, because I do believe these are the journeys that lie in front of us now. I'd certainly liked your feedback on these last three in particular to discover whether or not what kind of value these conversations have had for you in your life. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for listening. Please share these episodes if you found them of value. Please provide a review on whatever listening platform you you listen to, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. I'd appreciate uh, you sharing it. And you can also give this podcast some support through the Tips Jar. You can support Harry's work at emeraldarch.org. The link will be in the show notes. You can find me on LinkedIn at Donna, D-A-W-N-A-H Jones or on Instagram at Insightful Donna.